So I thought, hmm, maybe that's what should happen. (laughs) So I wrote an op-ed piece for the News and Record entitled, Should the Statue of My Ancestor in Greensboro Come Down? And that opened up conversations with a lot of local people. That was Joanna Winston Folly, and welcome to History Notes. My name is Alondia, and I have the amazing opportunity of hosting today's podcast, courtesy of Rodney Dawson, the museum's curator of education. And I also am an intern for the Greensboro History Museum, and I'm super excited to host this episode as we are delving into some topics that aren't really of knowledge to someone of my age. I'm 20, and I'm currently a rising junior at NC State University, so I'm really excited to be here because I am a Greensboro native. I love this museum. I celebrated my 15th birthday here, fun fact. I forced all my friends and family to come because I really, really love history, especially North Carolina history. My dad's entire family is from North Carolina. Our roots run deep, so, you know, I'm proud to be from the Tar Heel State. So I thought this topic was really interesting because... What does anybody in my age group care of monuments? Why should we care? And that's something that I hope to tackle right now. So let's get started. Well, my first visit to Greensboro was in 2013, and it was a heritage trip to see the statue of my ancestor, Joseph Winston, in the National Military Park. And in 2020, my thoughts went back to that statue because violence against black people was covered widely in the news at that time. There were editorials, there were people out in the streets, and I remembered that statue and that my ancestor was an enslaver. And I read an op-ed in the New York Times. The writer suggested that the statue of his enslaver ancestor, Thomas Jefferson, be removed from public space in D.C. and replaced by a monument to Harriet Tubman. Okay, I'm going to repeat this maybe a couple more times, but this time I'm going to say it. I'm no expert on monuments, but Monument Lab, a nonprofit public art and history studio based in Philly, did a national monument audit. In their report, they found that more than half, half of our nation's commemorative monuments are white males. And many of these white males came from wealth, owned land, and enslaved African Americans, much like the example of Joanna's ancestor, Joseph Winston. Hi, everyone. My name is Jose Vasquez, Associate Director of Communications at Monument Lab. And before I begin, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Muscogee Nation from which I'm based out of today. The public art and monuments from which we are learning and building from is on land that is not ours to claim, and I think it's our responsibility to honor and respect its origins. We, as a country, we're in an intense battle over monuments, and the landscape of monuments has been as old as this nation itself. And monuments are also paradoxical. They represent something in our public memory, but they're difficult to track in terms of patterns, themes, sponsors, who made them, why are they there, how were they sponsored? Monuments can also be hyper-local, right in our backyard, or they can be national. And despite all of that, there is no single agreed-upon definition of a monument in American culture. There is no agreed-upon term. The term monument is an unstable terminology that should remind us 
that the power to convey stories of the past, present, and future should not just be isolated to one single art form or voice. And that includes monuments. Now, I want to delve into the National Monument Audit. This was produced by Monument Lab uh, last year. And I think it not only talks to us about the racial disparities in our monument landscape, but it helps us rethink and reimagine our collective future. Um, before I delve into this audit, I want to acknowledge that this is all possible thanks to our director, Paul Farber, director of research, Sue Mobley, Lori Allen, the Mellon Foundation, and a huge team of collaborators that are listed on Monument Lab's website. Before I delve into it also, uh, there's a quote that I want to read to y'all by Elizabeth Alexander. She says that the most durable monuments in the United States have not endured because they best tell the stories of who they are, of who we are, but because they are the products of the most financial resources and hegemony in its many forms, racial, ethnic, religious, and gender-based. I think this quote makes me think about what monuments do for us in the first place. Uh, how are they going to be reimagined where we can encounter the past, present, and future? And how do we consider them as, what I like to say, portals for possibilities? So what is a monument? I told you all that there was no singular term. But out of tens of thousands of conversations that Monument Lab had in public spaces, we've come to define monuments as statements of power and presence in public. I'll repeat that again. Statements of power and presence in public. A central misconception about monuments is that there's some government agency that's tracking all the monuments. You know, someone that's just writing down every single one that exists. That does not exist. There is no list of monuments to be put into a search engine. There's no monument data that's been stored for centuries. It's scattered. It's messy. So I pose you this. I believe that there's such a profound connection formed to people, places, and things when you can reference history within the context of those that came before you, much like a statue. And that's impactful to me. And not just me, many of my friends feel the same way also. So I invited them to come on this podcast and share their opinions and share their differing perspectives as they range culturally and racially and their beliefs as well. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi there. My name is Corina Diol. I'm a South Asian woman, daughter of immigrants, and sick Asian American. Hey, my name is Maya Williams, and I am a straight African-American woman who identifies as a Christian. Hi everybody, my name is Courtney. Um, I am a white female. Hi, my name is Carly Gordon and I am a woman of color. My mom is Colombian, my dad is black. Hi, my name is Kamaya and I am a straight black female. Hi, I am Khalees Johnson and I am a proud black woman who is also plus size. Once again, those are the voices of my friends, Karina, Maya, Courtney, Carly, Kamaya, and Khalees. You'll hear their voices throughout the show, giving a, dare I say, much-needed Generation Z opinion on our topic. And I know, those were a lot of names to remember, but I hope that you remember my name. Once again, I am Alondia. So let's get back to Joanna. Joanna was telling us, she told us, that her ancestor statue poses moral question for her. Should it come down? He enslaved people. Morally, this is wrong, right? This is wrong. His statue should come down. But through her process, 
She posed another question. If his statue comes down, should something else go up? I'd written an op-ed piece for the News and Record called Honoring Hidden Heroes about the black soldiers who fought in the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in 1781. And they're not yet commemorated in the public art there or anywhere else in Greensboro. So I wanted to walk the paths of the National Military Park and do a little personal remembrance ritual, saying the names out loud of the 20 soldiers mentioned in my op-ed piece. Remembrance. The word remember is merely an act of perpetual existence. It's a verb. It's an action word. Every day we are required to remember something or someone, and sometimes we're guilty of pretending to not remember. But how can we remember something that we were never taught? Joanna just mentioned African-American soldiers that fought at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. I was never taught that. So I pose another question, or more of a statement. Remembrance is an enigmatic quality. It can be frivolous, sacred, or anything in between. It's a choice. It's ultimately our choice. My focus shifted from my ancestor's statue to the other statues there. And I wondered, were they enslavers? And some of them were, and some of them I couldn't find any information on. And I began to think that what was really more important was the people who were not memorialized there, the African-American men who fought in that battle. And I realized that as my focus kept shifting, kept getting wider and wider, and I realized that it was not just in Greensboro, it's at other sites in the National Military Park and other places where there are public art. The story of African-American participation in the Revolutionary War is, is completely neglected. It's underrepresented. And they played a very significant role. I found that often uh, the soldiers that I'm specifically speaking about were mixed race individuals uh, with African, Native American, and white ancestries. Most were poor, single, young, and already free. In fact, I think it was only nine that I identified that were enslaved at some point in their lives. Um, nearly 61% of you know, these known 368 uh, were from that poor, remote border region with Virginia. And I also found that pretty interesting. A few had already served in the regulator conflict on the side of Governor Tron's forces, at least, and also a few in the French and Indian War as well. Also found at least 35 had been bound out or apprenticed at some point before or possibly when they enlisted. And as John Hope Franklin demonstrated, they already had a very tenuous status as free people of color before their enlistment. And so um, hopefully we'll get into what that status looked like after the war, after their service. I think it's best to probably start out with looking at the laws that govern the militia. And if you're not familiar, the militia is essentially this uh, peacekeeping force. It's almost akin to, you know, either a police force or 
the National Guard and various elements. Uh, but it's, you know, well over a hundred years old by the time of the American Revolution. All the colonies have these militia forces. And there are specific laws governing um, registration for being drafted into the militia. And some of these laws in different colonies restricted black service. And they also changed them in accordance with enslaved insurrections or rebellions. So in Virginia, uh, the restrictions began to tighten on black service in the 1630s and then really became hardline after Bacon's rebellion in 1676, um, when a large number actually of his rebels were African-Americans. South Carolina then uh, effectively barred black militia enlistment after the Stono Rebellion in 1739. And these laws continued throughout the revolution. Uh, Still a few people managed to find their way into service, but nowhere near to the degree as North Carolina. Um, There's also an interesting caveat, the 1756 law, which ended compensation for wounded militia veterans in North Carolina. So serving in the militia then became a a little bit of a calculated risk if you volunteered for that. There's a a huge problem in researching uh, black soldiers or really any soldiers in the militia and that there's uh, substantially less documentation, uh, less troop rosters and less um, real documentation of the battles they fought, uh, the command structure, et cetera. But what I, can tell you for sure is that the presence of African-Americans in the militia was both widespread and also crucial to the efforts of North Carolina's militia and all kinds of different endeavors. Uh, Typically in the militia system, uh, the enlistment was shorter, so typically three months. Some ranged as low as a a 10-day stint and then some ranged upwards of nine months, so um, it varied considerably but still much shorter than continental service generally. With this, they had a little bit more autonomy and agency. Um, And you know, how that affected African-American soldiers in in particular is uh, something I'm interested in and something I try to address in the thesis. Um, With specifically North Carolina's black militia veterans, there's this wide array of motivations, experiences, but also a lesser degree of monetary rewards, maybe even than their continental counterparts. Um, I found an unknown number of those that were actually killed or wounded in service. A few of their pensions mention uh, modern wounds, um, but with the lack of documentation, it's hard to know exactly how many uh, black soldiers in the militia died during their time in service. I did find uh, at least 14 who possibly served at Guilford Courthouse, um, again, either in the militia or in the case of Makaja Hicks in a Maryland regiment. And then with their tenuous gains and standing esteem, um, it's it's debatable whether that's uh, more or less true for militia soldiers. Uh, But either way, by 1812, the next major conflict North Carolina passes a law to bar black militia service except as musicians. So again, it's this, uh, you know, lost chance for, um, you know, mobility or for, um, 
doing something essential like serving serving your community serving the country and many of course did not even live to see pensions or any kind of final payment for their service that was the voice of Trevor Freeman, who is truly just a treasure trove of magical knowledge concerning African-American soldiers during the Revolutionary War, as he has his master's in American history from East Carolina University, and his thesis, which he shared with us, focused on the service and lives of North Carolina's 480-plus identified African-Americans involved in the American Revolution. Mr. Freeman is also the public programs director for the Western North Carolina Historical Association, based in Nashville. So y'all already know what I'm gonna say. Let's start it off with a round of questions from my friends. Two in particular have something to say, something notable about, have they ever heard of African-Americans participating in the Revolutionary War? Were they ever taught that? Did they even know that that was a possibility of something that could happen? Listen in. I mostly think of, you know, a guy with like a ponytail in the uniform, like the blue coat or the red coat with a bayonet in hand that's getting ready to fight in battle. I had no idea that African Americans played a significant role in the Revolutionary War. I believe that information is probably neglected because it disrupts the narrative of, you know, the hardworking Americans going to fight against the British. Um, and most people usually think of like white colonists. When I think of a revolutionary war soldier, I think of the white men and the waistcoats and the tricorn hats. And I think of, you know, essentially white men. And so moving on into how African-Americans played a significant role in the revolutionary war, that's not something that's talked about. And I think that information is neglected because, you know, we think about July 4th, independence, but it wasn't independence for us all. It was independence for white people from, you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't, it was America's independence, but not for America as a collective. And so putting African-Americans in that history, um, it, it kind of changes the view of it because, you know, it's this holiday that's celebrated fireworks and cookouts and all this and America's so great, but it wasn't great for all of us at that time. And so just think black people directly contributed to that, but yet they didn't benefit from that. Completely, It completely changes the history of it. It doesn't make it look um, like such a great event. Another scholar's voice that we'll hear is that of John Reese. He's a writer and historian based in Pennsylvania, and has even participated in a few reenactments himself. His book, They Were Good Soldiers, African Americans Serving in the Continental Army, 1775 to 1783, discusses the not often acknowledged history, if not hidden information, of the role of black soldiers during the Revolutionary War. Let's hear from him now. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When those words were made public in 1776, Africans had been enslaved in British North America for almost 160 years, and African Americans had been fighting for 14 months for the cause of American independence in the Continental Army, Navy, and States militia. Not for another 89 years would slavery in the United States be legally ended. 
Black soldiers' motivation for joining the Continental Army and their treatment while serving are important to any discussion of the military experience. The reasons largely mirror those of their fellow white and Indian soldiers. Many fought for national independence and hoped for opportunities in the new country. Some, perhaps many, joined for the adventure of military service, sometimes connected to the prospect of serving alongside family or friends. Others were at least partly enticed by the lure of an enlistment bounty or regular pay. And after the ideals espoused in the Declaration of Independence, some fought for their own freedom or for that of their loved ones. Forced service was another factor. If they were on the militia rolls, both white and black men periodically faced the chance of being drafted for a short-term stint in a Continental Regiment. Whites were also occasionally compelled to enlist, but enslaved African-Americans were more often coerced or forced by their masters to serve. Many, especially in New England, were promised freedom in return for military service. Most of those promises were honored, but some veterans were kept in bondage. Of course, the major dividing line between white and black common soldiers was the American system that enslaved 90% of the country's African-Americans and treated free blacks as second-class citizens. One remarkable result of my research on black continental soldiers is finding that they largely received the same considerations as their white comrades. At the most basic level, soldiers of color, both African and Native Americans, received the same pay, provisions, clothing, and equipment as white soldiers. As regards all those things, both whites and soldiers of color suffered together in times of scarcity and jointly enjoyed the rare times of bounty. The most glaring case of unequal treatment was that black soldiers were largely barred from serving in any rank other than drummer, fifer, or private soldier. And further, in the early war years, they were occasionally given labor deals details more often than white soldiers, but that ended by the conflict's middle years. In the end, there may have been difficulties due to officers or fellow soldiers' personal or race animus, but to my knowledge and research, such instances were few and far between. Okay, I've learned so much. We started off with Joanna guiding us through what this problem was that we didn't even realize was a problem that so many African Americans are missing in our monuments, especially just the founding of our country going from colony to actual independent nation, that there were African Americans in the midst of that. We had Jose has taking us through the lack of definition that surrounds monuments and really just the limitless research that can be done on them. And then we had John Reese and Trevor Freeman taking us through the rounds of really what African-Americans contributed to the Revolutionary War. And we're going to go on a break right now from history notes as we're discussing mining our monuments and when we come back we're going to talk about representation i'll see you then i'm alondia how do you take the history in a place like this famous for all of the learning tools of yesteryear and then connect the generations together including the diverse and digital learners of today the Greensboro History Museum Education Webinar Series. Engage, learning, and beyond. Let's go. All right, and uh, you know, I always oh, never asked you this question uh, before in one-on-one conversation, so I guess I'll ask you with a mic in front of me. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Well, it's interesting. You, made, you mentioned Lewis Brandon. He and I are from the same hometown, Asheville, North Carolina. We both came to Greensboro for the purpose of going to North Carolina A&T. I must admit that uh, Mr. Brandon's a little ahead of me in my time. I did not know him until I got here and actually did not realize 
uh, how knowledgeable he was of Greensboro after I graduated from college, and he actually started working in my current position, and I got to know more about Lewis Brandon, but he is a phenomenon himself, great history, and had a great knowledge on that, because I mean, I'm just, I've been amazed at his work with uh, some of the icons. Uh, That's Max Sims, head of the East Market Street Development Corporation, and I'm Rodney Dawson, your regular host of History Notes. Matt will be featured on an upcoming podcast about the history of East Greensboro, so remain on the lookout for that. However, for now, let's get back to my intern, Alondia Warren, doing a fantastic job bringing you this History Notes podcast, Minding Our Monuments. Hello, I'm Alondia, and we're back with History Notes, where we're discussing our topic of choice, Minding Our Monuments. So let's jump back in with a conversation on representation. Representation. Time and time again, we learn that it simply does matter. Representation matters. Even in our statues, representation is unequal. So why would we expect that in the digital spaces that most of Gen Z, all of Gen Z frequents, that will be represented there? There's so many conversations about what we see in the media of how African-Americans specifically are represented, how other people of color are represented, and it's not an accurate depiction. So I talked to my friends about this, and I asked them, do you feel represented in the media? As a Black person, I do feel represented in the media, but not in the most positive light all the time. I do feel represented in the media um, as far as like race goes. Um, I feel like there's not a lot of African-American media coverage, um, especially for females. Um, I feel like women in the media in general, they're kind of looked down on as like less of a person or less capable compared to men. Um, so that's another thing that kind of bothers me is I feel like women are kind of looked down on a little bit. Um, but as far as the media goes, I do feel represented. I feel like there has been an increase in representation. Is it enough? No. But I feel like there's honestly more misrepresentation going on. In regards to my identities, I do feel represented in the media. Um, Definitely not to the extent that I would like, but I think I see a lot of very admirable women of color, black women, Hispanic women in the media as characters or portraying themselves, um, I do see that pretty often. As a South Asian woman, it's hard to feel represented in the media when I'm already underrepresented in the media. When South Asian comedians such as Kamal Nanjiani and Hasan Minhaj speak to the Desi experience, when Hasan cracks jokes about his immigrant parents. But my dad's from that generation like a lot of immigrants, where he feels like if you come to this country, you're going to endure some racism. But for me, like a lot of us, I was born here. So I actually have the audacity of equality. Like, I'm like, no, I'm an honors gov. I have it right here. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all men are created equal. That's when I feel represented. Things that happened in the Desi household that were portrayed in Chandra Rhymes' season two of Bridgerton. So yes and no, I feel represented. Because we all know that Bajit from Phineas and Ferb is representation, one could say, but it's not accurate representation. 
for Megan Thee Stallion and Lizzo's are some people that I resonate with who are black women. Lizzo's plus size and Megan's um, taller than the average black woman. Um, they definitely represent me, but I feel like that's based on their own accord. Like there are people who put themselves out there, but based on the movie, I do not think I am represented at all. Listening to my friend's answers, you you start to pick up on a pattern. They all present a caveat. So my freshman year of college, I took a class called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Hollywood. It was taught by two professors, one of which was a director herself, Dr. Rachel Ramos. She's directed for the Oprah Winfrey Network, HBO, Hulu, Disney Plus, the works. She gave us an assignment. She told us to write a journal entry about the first time that we felt wholly represented on a movie, a TV show, anything. Wholly represented. When I wrote my journal injury, I presented a caveat as well. Here in Greensboro, he's memorialized in three different ways. There's the statue. There's the gravestone. He was uh, reinterred almost 100 years after his death uh, at and reburied here, close to his statue. And then in the visitor center there, there's uh, a little display picturing the ceremonial sword that the North Carolina legislature uh, awarded to him for his, his military role. And then there's Kings Mountain National Military Park, uh, sort of the sister park to the park here, just over the border in South Carolina. And there's some signage there at the exact spot where he led some South, some North Carolina militia. And finally, uh, in the Memorial Hall Chapel at Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, there's a tablet listing his achievements. It was placed by a school in Winston-Salem, and it honored his support for public education as an early trustee of the University of North Carolina. Joseph Winston, Joanna's ancestor, he truly is everywhere, and that speaks on representation. White history is predominantly what we see in our monuments. So, I asked my friends once again a tried and true repetitive theme developing here. Fill in the blank. I associate monuments with... I associate monuments with history and admirable people that should be... Uh, viewed as role models and in things that they did for historical events. This is how people learn about the United States. Like even um, people that travel here from different countries, they look at monuments um, to understand what, like who we have seen as leaders within our country. A very specific um, time in history where there was a turning point where either the person or the event change the tide in history. I associate monuments with history just in general. Um, I think that's just kind of how I was taught. Like, oh, you see a monument, that's an important part of history, or that's because that person did something important, which, you know, it could be the case. Um, But it also depends on what the monument is, like what the monument's of or who it's of um, that I kind of associate it with. I associate monuments with false history. I associate monuments with a particular race and gender, white and male. As you heard, 
they have varying takes of what they think monuments are, what they associate them with. Many of them optimistic of what they could possibly become, and many of them knowing what monuments have always meant to people of color in this country. But did any of their answers surprise Joanna? Well, I wasn't surprised, but um, I think we need to look more closely and see what's really there. And it's not all white people. It's white men. And it's not average white men like my father, who was a farmer or a small business owner, or my father-in-law, who was a railroad engineer and a long-distance truck driver. It's white men who were large landowners, who enslaved people, and who came from inherited wealth, men who were generals and presidents. Two popular sayings sum up the role of social class and wealth behind monument placement. He who pays the piper calls the tune. Freedom of the press belongs to the man who owns the press. Monuments tell us who we should look up to in both senses. Whether or not the monuments we have up today commemorate the white people and figures is something I think about a lot. Since the ones I value communicate values of peace, justice, freedom, and equality as an Asian American, I look to find and hold close the monuments that resonate with my values. Let's take the Statue of Liberty. It's a symbol of freedom. It was given to us by France, and it represents something that every American can hold fast to and value. On the contrast, let's take the Washington Monument. Here we have this monument commemorating and commemorating and honoring George Washington. And not only was this monument built by enslaved people, but Washington owned more than 300 slaves. There is this past that comes with this monument that needs to be recognized and reckoned with as it still stands to this day. I think memorials like the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial stand for what Martin Luther King Jr. stood for, nonviolence, fighting for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And this memorial was done by Marshall Pernell, the a black architect who designed this memorial intentionally to reflect the values that Martin Luther King Jr. fought for. Speaking of influential African-American men that have changed the landscape with their artwork, changed communities with their artwork, I would like to introduce everyone to Ed Dwight. I had the amazing opportunity to ask him questions, and if anyone doesn't know who Ed Dwight is, he is an accomplished and renowned sculptor. And he has done many works of art across our country, and he is a former Air Force veteran, and was also the first African-American man to be recommended to go to space. So I asked him many questions, and he answered them very honestly. 
One in particular, I asked him how African-Americans that weren't in the art community viewed his work and how they how they translated it into their lives. And he answered very honestly and how it affected him even. I've been operating on a different plane. And what I mean by that, I grew up in the white world. And I I was driven since I didn't know, I know nothing about any black history. And I didn't know what the, I went into the military when I was 18 years old. And, and, and I was uh, shielded away from all of this controversy about race and, uh, and, uh, and progress and black progress and all these things because I was busy being a military officer. And, uh, and I had no concern uh, about what was going on out in, uh, in the world. And, uh, and now I'm, uh, I started doing art when I was in my 40s. But it took some explaining by somebody, uh, a mentor of mine, to tell me that, that black folks in America were in were in difficulty. They were having difficulty there. There was racial injustice around, and and and, and for me, uh, the, the challenge was how to. The, the only way that I saw in in, in healing that was to let the white community know, or, or anyway, I made a decision that the white community didn't know enough about what black people did to provide any respect or to, or to provide any justice to, to uh, you know, to blacks, uh, you know? So uh, I started doing memorials that, that, that recounted our history. And these are, I started out doing just regular, uh, just doing people one at a time, like all the black greats and Frederick Douglass and A. Philip Randolph. And, and those were the, the, the ones I started. But as I learned more of black history, I began to increase, I began to tell very large stories about regions of the country in order to explain to the white community that, that we, that black people had a meaning here in the United States. and we contributed more than they thought we did. And telling stories about how America would not exist had not been for, for the black community. Uh, so, uh, I, I, and so my, my, my effort was on a, a, was on a much larger scale, if you will, by, by trying to tell, and all my venues were capital, white capital grounds and, and in white, white venues where, where, where the, white people could see, uh, you know, the, these memorials and make their own determination. But, but, but to answer your question about how, how would it instill, uh, uh, I've done 130 memorials since I've started doing this stuff. And I, 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 I get tons of fan mail and class mail and I help PhDs that, are, that write with the, the doctoral thesis on my body of work, I've worked with about 10 of them. Well, well they're telling these stories, you know, they use it in their thesis and stuff. And I've got to supply them raw information so, so they can use some of the, uh, some of the experiences that I've had and its effect on the black community. And for my mail, uh, uh, it, it, and the school, for high schools and the grade schools and elementary schools, to this day, uh, 
uh, I, 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 I've got a separate, uh, you know, for my fan mail. Uh, you know, so it's all the stuff that I've done is, is effective for the people who have seen it. Uh, to, to answer your question, um, and I, I know it works because I because they call it right and tell me that it does. So I know it's having an effect. I just wish I could train more artists to help me do this stuff. When it comes to monuments and representation, it comes down to this saying, it doesn't matter what your intent was, it's the impact. Impact matters. And as we're listening and we're learning with all these different voices that have so much knowledge, what comes to the forefront of your mind? What are you envisioning? Is your definition of monuments changing? Is your definition of your community changing? Is the definition of yourself changing even? Of what you thought you knew? Of what you didn't know? Just a couple thoughts as we move on. My wish is for people to walk through the parks and the streets and online and in the digital world to see images of people who look like them and sound like them to say, this is my park, this is my city, I belong here. Representation truly matters. Public art can contribute to building a sense of community. This was apparently the intention of the Guilford Battleground Company back in the 1880s. Looking back beyond the divisions of the Civil War, they wanted to um, go back to the era of the American Revolution, the Good War, and to erect statues to honor folks of that era. In fact, there's a monument at the park that proclaims no north, no south. When the new monuments were unveiled, there were huge celebrations, thousands of people, speeches, bands, food, politicians kissing babies. You know, it was building a sense of community based on uh, an earlier history that they thought people could, could get behind and support and feel good about. As one community was brought together by the rewriting of history, another was excluded. People of color, specifically African-American patriots and their descendants, their stories remained untold, unheard, unformed, no monument. Ishmael Titus told his story in the court of law. He told his story in a way that it could not be misconstrued or anything because the history of itself keeps it alive. The history of what happened to Ishmael has been kept alive. The journey of Ishmael's Titus bloodline has been kept alive here in America. And now a time has arrived in our lives that it's, it's up to us to move forward and share his story with the world, share our story with the world, and then share our story as we educate the family, we educate the world. And that's just my position on it. I, again, thank you for having us. 
I'm looking forward to what the future brings to our family. But when you learn that a bloodline of five or 12 African boys born between 1810 and 1845 and Ishmael passed away right around 1850, 52, he was here when the bloodline that we learned that we come from was still here, was here on this earth while he was still here as well. And out of the 12 Titus boys born into slavery, we as a family, those that have gathered and joined myself on this journey, we have uncovered the locations and visited visitations with five of the 12 Titus boys that was born into slavery have been reunited in our Titus bloodline. And again, which has thrust us moving forward into reclaiming Ishmael as an American Revolutionary War hero and a war hero and a family man to our family here in America still alive. To give context to that voice, that is the voice of Solomon Titus, a descendant of Ishmael Titus. I think it's so wonderful when African Americans get to trace their ancestry back because as I mentioned before, my family's from North Carolina too, and our roots run deep. And that's just an example of how far our roots run so deep in this country, in this nation, that our existence really precedes the existence of the United States as a country that's independent. And I think that's such a beautiful and profound example of how African Americans are reclaiming their family history and finding out that, yes, we are patriots. And that even if that story is oral, that it's still legitimate, whether you can validate it with legal documents like the Titus family was able to. It, it still matters. It's still a story. And I think that just really exemplifies why monuments are so up for interpretation, like, like how Jose Vasquez mentioned earlier. Monuments are up for interpretation. It's whatever definition we deem to give them. And through this, we learn. So Joanna, can you tell us the monuments that you know of that honor Black patriots? Yeah, Kings Mountain added a marker to uh, African-American patriots in 2016. And that was at the impetus from the local DAR chapter. Um, then Charlotte, there's the Liberty Walk, 1775-1783. It's sort of like Boston's Freedom Trail. And um, so there's a marker there that went up in 2012, African-American contributions during the American Revolution. And they're outside North Carolina, still on the subject of honoring the uh, black veterans of the Revolutionary War. There's a, a monument of in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, which is a part of the National Park Service, that uh, the people behind getting that put up were a black sorority, Delta Sigma Theta. And this happened in 1993, and they collaborated with a, a local scholar at Temple University, and they raised the funds themselves, and they got it put up. And then in terms of uh, monuments in general, here in Greensboro, 
There's a fair amount of public art that celebrates black people, including uh, a bust of Dr. King from 1994, created by Wilbur Lee Mapp and restored recently by Jim Gallucci. There's a statue to Dr. George Simpkins, Jr., a dentist and an activist for sports access, health care, and voting rights. His statue was uh, put up by... Uh, created by Maria Kirby Smith in 2016. And then there's the monument to the A&T Four, created by James Barnhill in 2002. So public art in Greensboro is doing a better job of representing black people in the modern era. It's the representation in the revolutionary era that needs to catch up. So I've been speaking about a statue or monument at the National Military Park to match the 29 others that are there. But representation of the hidden heroes could happen next door at the Country Park or downtown near the Centennial Statue of General Green. It could happen in public murals along the Greenway. Whatever location the community decides, it just needs to happen. So anytime you offer critique, as a dancer, because I grew up dancing, you have to have a solution, right? And just like Joanna said, if we want to see these monuments, they can happen anywhere. It just needs to happen. So for one final time, I asked my friends what their solutions would be to monuments. And they gave me alternatives. Check it out. Some alternatives to, um, you know, a statue, I think... One of my favorites is um, creating like scholarships or donations in that person's name. Um, I think that's really impactful because it's like their legacy lives on. I think some really cool alternatives to honoring people from the past rather than with a statue would be, you know, voice recordings, video recordings, anything tangible. I love going to museums and seeing the book that someone wrote all of their revolutionary ideas on or um, a garment of theirs that they wore when they gave a speech that was really important. Now that we have technology, I think videos and audio recordings of the person would be really influential. Lastly, I think some alternatives to honoring individuals from the past could include digital interactive walkthroughs or immersive experiences through QR codes or apps on your phone. I think there are several alternatives that could be used, kind of like dedicating articles or something along those lines. Um, I'm not really sure of any specific ideas, but there's so much um, media and technology and platforms out there today that there's, I'm sure there's one or two or more than that, um, a number of ways that you can still kind of bring what that person did into light without highlighting, you know, like major parts putting that person on a pedestal. Some alternatives to statues would be museums. I was just watching this video about this Tupac museum in LA, and I feel like that's such a great idea and instead of putting like a Tupac statue somewhere I can see that being vandalized so fast but making a museum where people who want to learn about certain people can go or just 
you know, they can gravitate towards what they want to learn and not necessarily putting things like Mount Rushmore and, you know, all these other statues in the public view, but allow people to gravitate towards what they want to learn in museums, which I feel like are like a safer space, you know, for these type of recognitions. I think that if we had a museum, like a large museum, that we could uh, put in like traveling like traveling exhibits so it could be filled with different information that could stay for for a period of time like six months or um four months like a quarter of a year and this information could change and it can update and then we would have them repeated sometimes but that would take into consideration about how much information there is needed to learn in this country and then also making it like I said accessible so putting it online or having virtual tours or allowing children to do like um like a field trip to the museum but have it in their classroom or have people from the um museum come to their classroom to teach them about them about these things there are many different ways to keep this um to keep things like this like museums available and open and accessible to all people and I don't think that people realize this with so much that is going on in the media and um everything that's going on in our country right now it's hard to even imagine like what this would look like, but it would definitely be something that is beneficial. There's so many stories, so many stories that aren't included in the status quo or what we consider to be the caliber, the standard, or what we consider to be honorable. But a lot of the statues that exist technically or generally don't add up to that standard at all that we're creating today in the 21st century of what's acceptable and what we should aspire within ourselves as a nation. Right? Inclusion is so important, and I think that's what we learn today when minding our monuments and hearing the voices from the Titus family, descendants of a Black patriot of hearing the stories from scholars like Trevor Freeman and John Reese, of hearing Joanna's origin story for how this came to be, of hearing the story of Ed Dwight and his connection to art and how other African Americans view his art. We're all so intrinsically connected to what we want the future to look like. And shockingly, to someone of my generation, that includes monuments. Monuments play a huge role in what we aspire to be, what we don't want to be, is what we found out from my friends, right? There's so much out there. And I think that's what we need to look forward to. And that's what we're going to build to. So all those stories that are forcibly forgotten and erased and pushed under the rug, like the stories of Black patriots and the stories of other communities of color, we're going to bring those stories to light. That's what Minding Our Monuments is about. That's what History Notes is about, because we're all included in history. We're all making history at this very moment, maybe. We're all deserving 
of being seen and being heard and being known. And those Black patriots that we've forgotten for so long and some of us just now hearing it, like myself, we can say we remember them and we know them and that their stories deserve to be preserved. And thank you for listening to me today and being a part of this conversation, especially my friends. I'm so thankful. And I want to thank the museum for this opportunity and the curator of education, Rodney Dawson, for allowing me to be an intern and giving me this platform to really explore another aspect of history within this realm. So that was History Notes, and this was Minding Our Monuments. And I'm Alondia Warren, signing off.